it's a narrative we all want to believe. We all want to believe that some disease is curable. And healthcare is gloriously complex. It is not fixable, typically. It is rare that there's a cure for anything. And so it's, it, healthcare tends to be a space of incrementalism. This is Dan Diamond, and you're listening to Pulse Check. It's the middle of October. We are in the middle of a brutal presidential race and political season. So for a breath of fresh air, for something totally different, we have a conversation today with one of my favorite healthcare thinkers, a venture capitalist, Bijan Salahizadeh. Bijan runs an investment fund that's about $110 million, and he comes out of the venture capital world, where at Highland Capital, he got to invest in some of the biggest and most interesting healthcare companies. There were two stories I really wanted to talk to Bij about. First, somewhere north of $4 billion is going to end up being poured into digital healthcare this year in the, in the form of investments. And Bij is the perfect person to talk about what those dollars are getting us now and what they could get us down the line. Second, he has a great perspective on maybe the scandal of the year, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes pitched him on the company a decade ago, and you'll hear us talk about what his reaction was at the time and what he makes of Theranos today. It was a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And at the end of the show, I'll tease some of our upcoming guests. First, some housekeeping. Just a reminder, keep reviewing the show, rating it, sharing it with friends, if there's a podcast app that you use and you can't find Pulse Check on it, let me know. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com. And we'd also love to hear your general feedback. How long should the episodes be? How many should we be doing per week? Is once a week enough? You can find me by email. You can find me on Twitter. I would love your reaction. And with that, here's Bijan Salahizadeh. Let's say I've got a brilliant new idea for a healthcare app. We'll call it Open Exam Room, like open table, but, but for doctors, you just find the next appointment. I need $50,000 to hire programmers for this app. That's maybe a seed investor, angel investor. The company grows now, and we need, we've got 10 staff, and we need $2 million to kind of make this a more legitimate business. Who are we pitching then that that would be typically a venture capital firm at that point usually one focused on early stage venture capital investments um and you're probably going to raise three to five to ten million dollars to take it to the next place and once you do that you'll it's it's just about staged capital and staged risk so at each part of the spectrum of people we spoke about in this in this chain of investing they have different risk profiles um, and often different um, expectations of what they think might happen in terms of the multiple they might make on their money. The earlier stage you invest, the higher return, obviously, you're looking for, and usually the higher mortality rate in those companies. Yeah, what's what's the death rate, essentially? I mean, of every 100 seed investments, how many actually pan out to be something more than? So the data on this is extremely murky because people don't like to report bad outcomes. It's it's kind of like uh, doctors reporting their bad outcomes. There's, it's It's not well reported. Um, I'd say overall in venture capital, so venture capital firms, and there are is better data here, about 60% of investments made return less than the capital put in the businesses. Um, it's actually more like 50% in healthcare and more like 75% in tech. So it's um, it's a pretty high mortality rate. It's This is not for the faint of heart. I can imagine seed investments, 90% will fail to return capital. That That's probably the metric. 
And where do you sit in the food chain? So at Navamed Capital, the firm that I founded with a couple of partners, we sit in more the growth equity and small buyout world. So we're looking at businesses that are mature and profitable and looking at buying a a control position greater than 51% of that company, typically from an owner-operator who's grown it either through some seed and angel capital or by bootstrapping it, which is the alternate to all this. You never raise any capital and you just actually do it the good old-fashioned way by customers and getting profitable on your own sweat equity. And that's where we focus, and we focus solely on healthcare services, including pharmaceutical services, but providers um, and um, and low-tech medical products, kind of distribution-type businesses. So if I'm a listener to this podcast, and I've got a brilliant idea that I've been cooking up in my garage, and I need startup money, you are not the guy to not, fetch. Not the one to call. Um, I'm always happy to hear from people, but the odds that we're going to invest in, in, in two guys or two gals in a garage in Palo Alto is zero. Once upon a time, I feel like you were one of those guys in the garage. You went to med school. Then you you promptly, as soon as med school was over, went out to California and joined a tiny startup and then became a venture capitalist pretty quickly afterward. Would you recommend that path? Um, you know, it's. Uh, I think it was dumb luck. So it's hard to recommend a path that I didn't plan. Um, uh, it was... Um, you know, I think getting into the investment business is very difficult. There are very few positions, and um, they typically aren't advertised. So it's it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time when the investment firm or the or really the startup that is looking to hire you, depending on what where you're looking, is looking for the person of your background and skills. And so hard to recommend a path that I I blindly lucked into, thinking I was going to be a heart surgeon. Do you feel like the world needs more heart surgeons or needs more venture capitalists? Oh, definitely more skilled physicians. Um, uh, you know, I, I think about it every day. You know, in fact, my mom probably thinks I'm operating right now. But, you know, I think about what um, what the alternate universe would have been like if I was in the hospital right now. I probably wouldn't be sitting here being interviewed by you. So, Or, or running to a board meeting after this. But I, exactly. I, you, you've had to settle for this hard life as a healthcare <laughs> investor. It, it's been 15 plus years since you graduated from med school. I'm, I'm just curious about this. Do some of your med school classmates who went on to be doctors call you up and say, we want we want to be you. We want this life. I hear from lots of folks I, I went to medical school with and, and a lot of my good friends who are practicing medicine today. I think the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, they look at what I do and it's so strange and foreign to them. And sometimes they pitch me ideas of things they want to start. And it's I think it's it, it, there's lots of things about being an investor that are um, from the outside seem very sexy. Um, and, and attractive. And lots of it actually is. It's a very charmed place to be to make decisions about investments, particularly when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, where you sort of have often no business uh, judging a bus- an entrepreneur who's put their whole life into something. On the flip side, um, the, you know, I look at what they're doing and I say, boy, that bond with the patient, that ability to get close to someone in a moment of need and do something that helps them and their family is you can't replicate that in the business world. You just can't. It's a, it's a different unit of personal satisfaction. You, you just touched on something that has always fascinated me, this idea of kind of peak performance in a profession. And having listened to great podcast, uh, Tectonics, with David and Lisa, you did an interview with them a year and a half ago. Recommend that to anyone who wants to hear more about the venture capital world. But one point you made that really stuck with me was there was a period in time when, as a venture capitalist, you were really optimistic at the beginning of your venture capital days. And then there was a period five years after, almost as a reaction, where you became very pessimistic. And it it made me wonder, just like young doctors probably aren't the best doctors until they've gotten to see a range of conditions and and do all kinds of different procedures and, and work with other kinds of patients, 
venture capitalists probably peak after a certain number of deals that they've either gone in on or, or passed on. So what is the like prime time for a healthcare investor to really make his or her mark? You know, it's a it's a it's a great question. I think it's probably after you've seen some failure modes. So you know, as I as you know, I always think about you, you spend the first three to five years loving everything and the next five years hating everything that you see because you've seen how the things you loved can fail. And so um, I think the peak is sometime after you've seen some failure modes and you and yet you haven't become cynical. I think that the hardest thing to be is an investor who's cynical um, about anything. There's lots of reasons to be cynical in healthcare. You know, entrenched forces. Nobody wants to make less income. There's a hundred reasons to be cynical about any any deal you see, any investment opportunity you see. And I think the the time for peak performance is to to you know is to catch you as a, as the individual investor in your period of life where you haven't become cynical yet. And that's typically you've seen a few failure modes, but not too many. And by the way, if you've seen too many, you're probably not long for the investment world. So if you're a senior venture capital person and someone who's only been doing this five years is offering you recommendations, should that person basically be on probation until? he or she has been around for eight years or 10 years? That's usually actually the way it works in terms of how you get promoted in these firms. And and the, one of the guys who was my mentor and trained me at my old firm said, you know, it takes 20 to $30 million to train a venture capitalist, which means I expect you're going to lose money before I know whether you're any good. Um, and so that, there's, you know, there's something he says right now. It's, um, and that I think is reality. You have to see some things fail. You have to have some successes as well. Otherwise, you're you're not going to be in that firm very long. But it, 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 is, it is very much true what you said. If it takes 20 or $30 million to train a venture capitalist, much like we were talking about companies that burn out and, and fail, how many of those venture capitalists end up repaying that initial investment? Obviously, a great one can repay it at some huge multiple. Um, it, it follows a power law like everything else. And so, you know, um, the number of firms that, that return um, more than two times their capital to the investors that put money in that firm, which is a conglomeration of individuals who are making investments, is vanishingly few. Hmm. It might be 20 or 30% of all venture capital firms return just two times the capital they've been given. And by the way, that's considered quite good over the last decade. And so um, there are hundreds of people who start as young associates at venture capital firms, and there are um, dozens of people who end up at, out of that group as senior partners in those firms eight to 10 years later. I, I want to talk about some of your investment successes, but first we're going to talk about a time that maybe your pessimism was helpful. You alluded to Theranos earlier. You, you didn't invest in them. You didn't invest in Elizabeth Holmes, the, the CEO and founder, though you had the chance. Now, we're, we're looking at each other, and it's the morning of October 12th, 2016. I I have to imagine nearly every listener knows who Theranos is, but we're going to do a quick gut check and ask Bridget, the producer, Bridget, nod your head. Do you know? Bridget does not know who Theranos is, so, so maybe we should – I'll give the 30-second sketch, and Bees, you can jump in and correct if I'm, if I'm missing anything. So this, this is the Silicon Valley company that was going to revolutionize lab testing. It ended up being worth $9 billion. Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO, was profiled the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world, all kinds of glossy magazines speaking at the White House. And then it all came crashing down. About a year ago today, there was the Wall Street Journal headline, uh, hot startup Theranos has struggled with its blood test technology. That was October 15th, 2015. And fast forward, the company has 
been scrutinized by regulators. There's a potential ban on Holmes for even operating a lab. Forbes downgraded her net worth to $0 a few weeks ago. The company said, we're not even going to be in blood testing anymore. So they have become a symbol of everything wrong with Silicon Valley. And you were not associated with them because you passed on them, Beach. So let's, let's go back. When was this? When did they first come to you or you went to them? So in the fall of 2006 or spring of 2007, uh, one of our associates um, had heard about the company, reached out, and I was the one because I was in the Menlo Park office on Sand Hill Road to take the meeting. Famous Sand Hill Road. Famous Sand Hill Road, you know. And I sat in a conference room about the size of the one, Dan, you and I are in today, and I got the pitch from Elizabeth Holmes. Um, And I I remember... Was she she wearing a black turtleneck? No, no, this was before the black turtleneck era. And I remember... Because um, there was already a buzz about the company in Silicon Valley of this something interesting going on here. And I remember um, not understanding almost any part of the pitch. And I went back and looked at the slides just last night you know, as I was thinking about us having this podcast. I had a copy of those slides. And, and I still didn't understand what those slides were saying 10 years later. So... Um, what, Look, what did the slides say? You know, they if, were. If you're allowed they to were, say, yeah, uh, th- th- we, we'd never signed a confidentiality agreement, but they were building a box, um, which is kind of the business model they've gone back to after they got rid of the idea of doing a lab, or were told they couldn't do that idea anymore due to the regulators. Their, their, their finger prick testing that they could take a drop of blood and do the testing. That's that's kind of out the door now. Yes, yeah, so and now they're just building the box to run the tests on, and, and the idea is they're going to sell those boxes to other labs, and and that was kind of where they started, and and I didn't understand why the world needed that box or how it was really all that different from many, many, many instruments that are made by many large lab companies. And so um, the thing that stands out to me about that meeting and the interactions with the company after were that unlike almost every other business I've ever looked at, they were unwilling or unable to answer two-level questions deep on anything I asked because they either claimed it was confidential or they claimed they weren't ready to talk about that publicly. And so... That ought to set off warning flags. So I say, look, Theranos has everything to do with Silicon Valley investment and also nothing to do with Silicon Valley investment. It has nothing to do with Silicon Valley investors' investment because almost every one of us on Sand Hill Road and and elsewhere looked at this investment, those of us who are healthcare investors, and passed. There are almost no healthcare investors that you would recognize who ended up putting in the hundreds of millions of dollars that they raised over time. So this ought not to be viewed as emblematic of the kinds of things healthcare investors in the Valley invested in. It has everything to do with the Valley because the Valley loves a story stock. This was the ultimate story stock. And and in particular, healthcare loves a story stock. Healthcare is complicated. Blood testing is complicated. And we and I think there's a narrative that people like people like stories. Humans like stories and we like the story of a Svengali like leader who takes a b- bunch of very complicated things and reduces them to something simple that's explainable. Um, and can promote those ideas and innovations really well. But I think there's an extremely thin line between um, being an appropriate promoter and being on the verge of being fraudulent in how you convey a story. And that line, most investments that healthcare investors invest in stay on the right side of that line. And occasionally, once in a decade, there are stories like this that where they, they cross the line over and and... Um, look, I think the other part of this was that there was a failure of due diligence. Uh, uh, due diligence is the work we do when we make an investment. And the, um, you know, I think the warning sign here is that they were, you know, one of the investors is suing them right now. 
And and right, everyone is trying to get hundred million dollars back. Exactly. Everyone thinks in these large investment rounds that the other guy or gal investing is doing the work to suss it out, and that's a very dangerous place to be in these large story stock type investments. So in some sense, it was entirely predictable um, that that this was going to happen. And you know, really credit to the Wall Street Journal and John Carreyrou for just some outstanding reporting to unearth this. This is the pioneering Wall Street Journal reporter who. Interesting to me, the Wall Street Journal was where Theranos made its debut, this very splashy like op-ed. Uh, I can't remember the headline, but it was something like with a, with a drop of blood um, revolutionizing healthcare. And flash forward two years later, it's the Wall Street Journal undoing this, this company. Do you think if Kerry Rue hadn't come along and started asking his questions that Theranos could still be operating in, in maybe this traditional Silicon Valley way of – Maybe they're succeeding. Maybe they're failing. They're very opaque. Maybe they fail kind of slowly as opposed to this this crash. I think they would have failed slowly, but it might have taken years with the war chest of capital they had. They raised eight hundred million dollars exactly. Yeah. And and look, um, in some ways, if you were a, a real astute reader of the message board forums on Reddit, maybe three or four years ago, there were phlebotomists, people who draw blood, saying, "I don't understand why this is changing anything. In fact, I don't think this is doable." Um, but most people don't read the message board forums for phlebotomists on Reddit. Um, and so this was not did, a widely... Did, did you at the time? I did. I did. And I tweeted about it. But, you know, my little tweets weren't going to matter in terms of what, what ultimately ended up happening. It took a really dedicated reporter like like uh, uh, the one at the Wall Street Journal to unearth this and then fight a really significant politically connect, connected machinery in that company to get that story out. Well, I, I remember... I mean, now everyone is going to have hindsight and, oh, we weren't sure about Theranos. I know for a fact there are a couple very excellent reporters in healthcare and health tech who had these questions, but for whatever reason, didn't want to dive in. Some of it was, to your, your point, Bij, the story was great. This is the next Steve Jobs, this young woman, youngest female billionaire in the world. Like People want to buy in and, and build that kind of story up. And when you start asking questions and they spin and say, we, we can't talk about this, or it's so complicated that many people in the tech press, this is not a beat that they traditionally followed. There is now so much remorse that I see a lot of reporters who want to avoid being the victim of the next Theranos and, and kind of redoubling efforts to puncture the hype around these unicorn type companies, the companies that get a billion dollars in valuation, or, or not even unicorns, but things that could be. I, I'm sure there is more wariness than ever on the VC side. Do you feel like there are other Theranoses out there, or has has the tide already gone out and, and we've started popping the bubbles on those? Look, I think the the tide has gone out, but but if you talk to veteran investors in biotech, there are um, in every cycle several to many small and under-the-radar biotech companies that raise money on the promise of curing something without any of the data underneath that. And that happens in every cycle where something comes out that what they said they were going to do, they couldn't or was undoable. Um, but at the scale of Theranos, I think there's very few, if any, at that scale. And look, it's a, it's a cautionary tale in getting ahead of yourself in the press. They should not have been in the press doing what they were doing. If they were just an under-the-radar company that raised hundreds of millions of dollars and had to figure it out, None of us would probably care. But the fact that the CEO put herself on the cover of those magazines, I think, you know, made themselves more vulnerable to someone like the Wall Street Journal trying to puncture that that veil. Li they live by the press, die by the press. Live by the press, die by the press. I, I 
can't remember who told me this, but one of their strategies was we've got this young, charismatic female founder. That is the best press we're ever going to get. Like this was known and, and recognized by the company. So they went out for it. And I, I think for all of the hand-wringing that maybe this, this still happens in some corners, that maybe Theranos got too unfairly scrutinized. And now, now things have gone too far. My gut is if they were willing to play the press the way that they did on the rise, the press scrutinizing them awfully closely on the fall is exactly what they deserve. Um, I, I don't know if there are any, you'd mentioned biopharm companies that might be following in the Theranos footsteps. Can, can you name any that might no, come No, I mean, I, I, I don't follow that sector as closely, but, you know, the, 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 you know every few years you, you see an example of that. And it's typically, again, it's again around the entrepreneur who gets ahead of themselves in, in declaring to the press that they've got a cure for something that has historically been uncurable, and yet there's no data there yet. And, and, and look, at the end of the day, it's a fault of investors, particularly less sophisticated investors who tend to fall for those stories because they, it's, a, it's a narrative we all want to believe. We all want to believe that some disease is curable, some problem is fixable. And healthcare is gloriously complex. It is not fixable, typically. It is rare that there's a cure for anything. And so it's, it, healthcare tends to be a space of incrementalism. And so when you see something that's not incremental, and by the way, you can make money as, as an incremental, believing in an incremental thesis. That is how healthcare investors make money. But all of a sudden, you see something that's a cure, and you've not been around the block to understand that that usually isn't, isn't going to be what it's being touted to to be. Um, I think that is the, the formula for some of these problems. So a company that has some of the same red flags as Theranos, I don't want to say that they're doing wrongdoing there. There's zero evidence of that. But playing the media in, in a way to get max attention, promising revolutions that might be hard to deliver, a company called Oscar Health, the insurance startup that I've, I've written about before. I'm, I I'm confident they're on your radar because I think I may have even quoted you for a story that I did on Oscar Health. But this is the insurance company with a huge valuation, somewhere around $2.7 billion. Their pitch is we are going to make health insurance dynamic for younger people. We'll bring digital health into it and folks will manage their conditions more closely. The, the, the sexy story isn't the young Stanford dropout. It's that the founders are all young. They're all, I think, are Harvard MBAs. And one founder, one of the co-founders, Josh Kushner, a name that might be familiar to Politico readers because his brother is Jared Kushner, son-in-law of Donald Trump. So Oscar, for all of the, the big talk, enrollment has been slow. Their burn rate has been high. I think they lost 80 plus million dollars in the first half of this year. And a story broke this week that they're pulling staff out of New York, which is like their home office, and sending them to Arizona. So whether or not we think Oscar is the next Theranos, I'm curious, do you think they are a viable billion-dollar business? I don't think Oscar is the next Theranos. The people who have invested in Oscar and, the, and, and what I know of the people who run it are extremely intelligent. And even if they haven't come from the insurance world, there are many, many people you know, in that team who come from the insurance world. So um, you know, I, I, I think their intent is very good. And I think, I, look, I think we're better that there are companies like Oscar because they're trying to do something that's different in insurance. Now, I don't think starting an insurance company from scratch is an easy thing. There are very, very few examples historically of people being able to do that successfully because it's hard. Taking actuarial risk is extremely hard. And doing it with expensive investor capital, that is the most expensive form of capital to use as the base, the 
of actuarial risk because you need statutory capital to, to get these businesses started. Um, and I think what we're seeing as they, you know, Oscar's different than a lot of other companies because they're an insurance company, states force them to release the data on how profitable each of their health plans are right. and the medical loss ratios. And so we get these interim reports on in a company like Oscar yeah. in real time, and we don't get them on other startups. So I think they get judged in the press, um, and it's easy to judge them based on those results. I think for Oscar, it's going to come solely down to the fact of when can they turn the corner on medical loss ratio. Because so far, I think history has shown, and not just for them, almost every participant on the health insurance exchanges is upside down on medical loss ratio, other than the Medicaid carriers, from what I can tell. And so Oscar should be no different from that. It's just this, you know, how long are the venture capital investors and the other investors who have given them money going to continue to put money in? That's a question I can't answer. And I know they're trying to turn the corner. So I'm less pessimistic on Oscar as, as a Theranos-like um, company. Um, I'm just more pragmatic, and I, you know, we at our firm would never invest in a in an insurance company from scratch because the amount of capital it takes and the risk profile is just really hard to get an insurer started from scratch. And and to your point about the investors for Oscar versus the investors for Theranos, correct me if I'm wrong, Bij, but Google Ventures uh, famously said no to Theranos. There was a big dust up. Did they walk away from Theranos? Did Theranos walk away from them? Either way, Google said we're not investing in Theranos. They did invest in Oscar pretty big. So. They did. And I think Google Ventures and some of the folks, some of the other folks who invested are some of the smartest money investing in healthcare right now. So, and I have great respect for them. So I, 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 I'm, while I'm pessimistic on the idea of starting a health insurance company, um, I'm hopeful that Oscar can make it. I think if companies like Oscar don't make it out of this cycle, it's going to be very bad. That's going to be the chilling effect. Not Theranos. Not Theranos. I think it's going to be companies like Oscar and other ones that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in healthcare IT or insurance that are the poster children of this era of healthcare investing, especially digital health investing. I'm, I'm trying to think of others like Flatiron, maybe. Would you put them in that? But the cancer data startup? Maybe, but, but you know, ZocDoc. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. there's many of them that you can find. And, I, you know, um, I, think, I think it's bad for all of us in the ecosystem of investing if multiple of these companies don't make it. I, I want to pull on a thread that you just brought up, um, more smart people investing in healthcare. So Google has poured millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars through their venture fund into healthcare these past couple of years. Mark Andreessen, the founder of Netscape and, and the famous venture capitalist, now has their own healthcare venture fund. I, I can't decide. I mean, there's always talk of a tech bubble and it makes me wonder, is there is there a healthcare investor bubble? And if so, how do we know? Um, you know, there might be. Um, one of the stats we, we track is sort of amount of funding going into quote-unquote digital health per year, and it's been four or five billion a year now for the past three or four years, and that's been a dramatic increase over the prior three or four years. How, how do you define digital health? Uh, it's because like, different it's like, groups it's like, define it's it like Potter Stewart said, I know it when I see it, but unfortunately, I think people who track these things probably include everything into digital health medical device companies, healthcare IT. I define it as companies that are primarily IT-based, selling either to enterprises, hospitals, or insurance companies, or selling or have some app for the consumer. Um, so it's, I have a more narrow definition of what digital health is. People, I think, want to throw the kitchen sink into the definition of digital health. It's lazy from my perspective. And I think there's a backlash against that. You know, when a medical device or diagnostic company that's FDA regulated goes out and call themselves a digital health company. Um, 
that's just they're doing that because they want to get a certain valuation. They want to be included as a kind of company. And I think people investors are recognizing that quickly. Though, though, interestingly, um, different groups, we, we just kind of talked over this, different groups have different definitions. And the two groups that are tracking the space very closely, at least on my end, I get reports usually in the same week. Startup Health gives me a quarterly report of investment. Rock Health, um, both of them seed funds, incubators, however you want to think about them. Startups number is bigger because they tend to count more. They count something like Oscar as a digital health company. Rock Health is a little more narrow. Either way, whether using the startup number, which I think is like $6.5 billion in investment this year, Rock Health, $3.3 billion. So big, big delta between the two. But overall, billions of dollars pouring in to this space. What are we getting for that? Has there been evidence that this is leading to better care or real systemic change? I don't think there's any evidence of that yet. And look, this is you're, you're getting. You're, I'm going to give you the hopeful answer, and then I'm going to give you the less hopeful answer. I think um, things in healthcare take a long time. So just because investments have been made for the past three years at a record pace, we ought not to expect to see returns from those investments, whether you judge it by financial returns or improvements in the system, maybe for as long as a decade, because things just take a long time. But I think the more pessimistic view of it is IT alone will not fix the problems. IT is a necessary component. And this is the view I have and our firm has. It's the core to our thesis. IT alone is not going to fix the, quote, healthcare problem. The healthcare problem is multifaceted. And at the end of the day, healthcare tends to be a services-oriented industry where IT can be an enabler of a more efficient service. And that's a fundamentally different view than I might have held if you had done this podcast with me five or six or seven years ago from my office in Sand Hill Road. Well, you were also a junior venture capitalist, so we might have had to discount some of what you were saying. Exactly. You, you, you should have definitely discounted it at that point. And so... Um, so why should we trust you now? <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen all the, all the failure modes now. <laughs> you do have a few more gray hairs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Many more. Um, but, but I think, look, the, the, here's the thing that happens in healthcare. Um, off, you know... There's a narrative that forms that healthcare is the next vertical that's going to be made more efficient by IT. And by the way, this is not the first time we've had this narrative. This narrative occurred in the 80s with the mainframe kind of IT systems in healthcare. It occurred in the 90s when I first got started in the late 90s. It was called eHealth. No one remembers that moniker now, but that was that, was that I, era. I remember, yeah. And now it's digital health. Yeah. And, and I think with every era, the system gets smarter and the the usefulness of the things created becomes greater. And so my bet is that it's the usefulness of technology and its ability to impact the healthcare trend, however you define it, is up and to the right. Like the price of oil over the next 100 years, it's going to be up and to the right. Um, but it's going to have some very significant sort of ups and downs within that. And I, and I think people, people putting money into healthcare, and I'd say in particular tech investors, ought to be extremely careful in terms of what they expect the outcome of that to be and what time period by which they're judging it. This is not tech. We don't get Facebook-like returns in this space. What we get, if it's done well, is returns that actually exceed, on balance, software returns outside of healthcare, but we don't get 100,000x return investments. We get a slow, steady, you know, good, pay, you know, good number of exits in healthcare. And that's just been the history of healthcare outside of the dot-com boom of 95 to 98. That's just been the history. You, you made me think about a parallel between investing in, in Silicon Valley and kind of the healthcare ecosystem writ large. The failures of capitation and mergers in the 1990s where doctors and hospitals were trying to work together and huge losses didn't work, but that helped tee up the current mode of 
hospitals and doctors can look back 20 years and say, these are the things that failed. This is how we'll do things now. Some similarity in healthcare, where watching a company like Healthion fail, the, the big Jim Clark, I mean, fail or not fail, depending on your definition, but these, these big bets in healthcare that failed in the 90s help inform how Silicon Valley might invest and act today. I, th- I think that's right. As long as we assume that the people who made those investments and or were around to see those failures are still around today. And that's some one of the, some of the things I question. I certainly I think the healthy on era, a lot of those folks are still around and remember that failure mode. Um, but I think as time passes between these cycles, it's often hard to find people who've seen the failure modes. And so I think in some sense, as humans, as investors, we're doomed to often make the same mistakes over and over again if enough time passes whereby people aren't around anymore to, to remember them. I think, But I think, look, this era of digital health, I'm extremely optimistic about where it's going to go in the long run. And I think like most things, um, I'm very nervous that um, overfunding of healthcare IT, as I like to call it, um, is not going to yield to any anything different than it ever has. Typical healthcare IT exit um, uh, return, investment exit, is about 150 to $300 million exit when everything goes right. And I haven't seen any evidence that that's really changing, nor any evidence that there's some magical Facebook or LinkedIn-like return or Snapchat-like return coming in, in healthcare. I don't see any of those. And, and just to define the term, exit being the company's IPO'd or it's been acquired and they're getting $300 million as payment, which if you invested $500 million in the company, that's that's not a good return. I. I feel like we've talked about all of the areas where maybe we should be wary. You are more bullish on services. So curious where you are investing and if you can argue for that area as, as why it's worthy of investment, um, understanding the bias that you have, have dollars at play there. Yeah. Look, we, um, there's lots of areas of, of healthcare and healthcare services that we're bullish on. Um, I, I, and by the way, lots of these areas I, are bipartisan. One of the benefits we have of being located here in Washington, D.C. is that we get to be a little bit closer to the policymaking apparatus. I always say um, there is more bipartisan agreement in healthcare than people outside the Beltway think. Um, put aside the exchanges in Obamacare. There's lots more to healthcare than that issue. And there's lots of agreement on these issues. So we tend to f- try to find those areas. Behavioral health is a place that we've deployed capital and continue to believe that there's lots of deployment opportunities. It's not only a bipartisan issue, it's core to how um, people get treated. Um, and I think critical to bringing down the cost trend is managing the behavioral health issue of patients. Um, I think the theme around providers taking risk, doctors and small health systems or large ones, learning and managing actuarial risk from patients. Now, I said earlier, managing actuarial risk is really, really hard. And so we are always on the lookout for businesses that are helping um, physicians and groups of physicians help manage risk around specific conditions. It can be um, cancer, diabetes, you name it. I think the name of the game over the next couple decades is going to be how providers, because I think providers are best suited to do this, manage risk because there's nothing better than a doctor who's both financially and quality measure focused um, to be delivering that unit of risk management and actually you know, seeing the gains from that. And then finally, I think um, the idea of self-funding health insurance. The large businesses in this country have for many years been their own insurance companies. That has been migrating down to smaller and smaller businesses in the, um, in the last decade. And so small 100 to 200 person businesses now can become their own insurance company and manage, that, um, manage their health insurance with the help of you know, third-party businesses that kind of help run the actual plan. And I think that's a level of control 
that many small businesses haven't had, and a real cost savings where you don't have to pay Aetna and Cigna the profit margin that you used to in the past. So something that I'm, I'm very curious about, this is a dynamic time for healthcare. There are mergers on the provider side, there are potential mega mergers on the insurer side. Does that kind of transition give you more opportunity as an investor, or is it is it a concerning factor given that the landscape can change awfully quickly? Yeah, you know, it's it's a, it's really a double-edged sword for us where we sit. Um, on one hand, consolidation overall in healthcare is great. That means that um, bigger fish in the value chain always want to buy smaller fish, and healthcare is one of the most consolidating industries. And we invest in smaller fish and hope that bigger fish will buy them someday if we do our job well. On the other hand, when you are an investor in a smaller fish company and your customers are bigger fish, and if there's fewer and fewer bigger fish to sell to, um, it makes your job much harder as a management team that, of a company that we're backing to sell to fewer and fewer organizations. You just have less power as the vendor to those companies, whether they're insurance companies, health systems, you name it. There are just fewer and fewer people at the top of that value chain to sell to, and they're becoming smarter and smarter about how they buy things. So the bar gets raised in terms of what we invest in every day in terms of whether it can break through that consolidation wave. I don't think that consolidation wave is going anywhere. Um, uh, despite the good work the FTC has been trying to do, it's just it's a um, freight train that's almost impossible to stop from my perspective. One of the other big factors, the presidential race, looks like Hillary Clinton's favor to not only win but perhaps take some of Congress back. And the markets overall went up on that on that prediction, though the healthcare sector took a hit this week because of fears that she might regulate biopharma, all of the scrutiny on drug prices. Trump is seen conversely as a big wild card. Who do you think would be better for the healthcare sector? You know, it's a that's a it's a tricky question, I think, because so much of healthcare is bipartisan, I think it doesn't matter. I think in terms of stability, which is a measure that's important for how we invest in kind of overall company dynamic and investor dynamic, certainly Hillary Clinton is is going to be, I think the consensus is probably more of the same for most segments of healthcare other than perhaps biopharma, although we'll see. I think Trump, as you said, is a wild card and wild cards can be scary for markets. You just, you know, it's hard to know, you know, what's going to happen and uncertainty. You know, I remember uncertainty in 08, 09 when people didn't know what the affordable, whether Affordable Care Act was going to pass and what was really going to be the provisions in it. That period of uncertainty in healthcare was very damaging, actually, in terms of people's investors' desire to put money to work because they were afraid of what was around the corner, the thing they couldn't control. Interesting. And, I mean, it was it was maybe bad, but at the same time, if you got in early on some of the hospital companies or, or even insurance companies, which have since surged since that time, could have turned out to be a good investment. Turned out to be fantastic. And so you just that was that's basically you just give the pitch for why we decided to put our firm in Washington DC. I think a lot of what was in the Affordable Care Act, you could have known if you were walking around the policy shops and walking around the hill talking to people about what was actually happening. It feels really far away when you're in Silicon Valley or Boston what's happening here. And so um, had you been smart enough to do that and been investing during that period, um, you would have done very well in almost any segment of healthcare. This is getting to something kind of indirectly that I've, I've thought a lot about. When, when you were in Silicon Valley, when you're in a venture capital firm, and you're thinking not necessarily about the patient care on the ground, you're thinking about the potential returns and whether an investment is good or, good or not. And I just know the perverse incentives in healthcare are real, uh, the incentive to maybe maximize profit at times rather than maximize the best patient care. How do you balance that? Because at the end of the day, isn't the best investment one that returns the most money, not makes people the healthiest? 
the best investment is the one that returns the most money. But, um, you know, there's lots of interim measures other than returning the most money. For, look, for me, I'm, I went to medical school and, and I, you know, I, I got into healthcare for maybe a slightly different reason than some other healthcare investors did only because I went to medical school. I have to feel good about myself when I go to bed at night when I've invested in a company. So there's plenty of gimmicky ways to make money in healthcare. And often those gimmicks don't get closed during the lifespan of a, of a healthcare investment. So you can make, you can maximize profits sometimes. I just feel like most of those gimmicks do eventually get closed and you can't go to bed at night if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, I can't go to bed at night if I invest in a company that makes its profits through gimmicks. And there's plenty of loopholes and gimmicks in healthcare in almost every part of healthcare. Look, the thing about healthcare investing is the more you peel back the onion of any segment of healthcare, be it drug prices to you know, how health systems make their money, you name it. The more you peel back the onion, um, to play that analogy out, the more you want to cry um, because it's it's so complicated and everyone's got their fingers in the profit pocket of, of, of lots of aspects of this and it's really hard to unwind. We have the system we have and what we can do is um, add transparency and sunlight to that system to show everyone that um, where the profit is being made. I think if, if we can just do that, that you know is a good goal for for um, for policymakers. And I've I've known you for a while now. I know you to be a moral person who thinks about these things. Do you feel like most investors are like you? I think most healthcare investors are like me. Look, I'm an optimist. I want to believe that most people are in this for the right reasons. Um, and and look, the counterfactual to this is, um, you know, when you invest in a gimmick and that and that loophole gets closed and you still are sitting in that investment be it a reimbursement gimmick or a way you're coding something, your company's coding something that's not technically illegal or inappropriate, but eventually gets closed um, because CMS does watch. There's this, there's this perception that CMS is not looking. They're looking at everything. This is a fixed pot and they look at everything. So the, the idea that an investor might have that this is going to continue forever is just really foolhardy. And so I think most investors um, eventually get to that place, if not are already there. So I'd like to do a lightning round, and it's going to be a real lightning round because you've got to go to the airport and I've got to go do a TV interview. So very quick answers. But uh, I know that you believe in intermittent fasting, where you fast a couple days a week. Is today one of those days? Um, I've, I've modified, I, I test on my body all the time. My partners at Navamed know this. So my current modus operandi is um, no food before 2 p.m. And that's every day, including today. Wow. And I've lost 12 pounds on that. Congratulations. Yeah. And, and you seem mentally quick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You, you, I know you're a fan of both of these bands because it's in your Twitter profile. They're two of my favorites, too. You can either see a U2 show or an Arcade Fire show. Who do you pick? Wow. It's, it's, you're asking me to pick my favorite child. Um, I guess right now I'd probably go see an Arcade Fire show only because I've seen 60 U2 shows and only about six or seven Arcade Fire shows. U2 is a little long in the tooth. Arcade Fire is not I didn't say that. Well, <laughs> I, I think the world said that. Um, is the elevator pitch real? Do you, if you're an, a, a startup person, do you need to have that 30 second, I'm going to pitch you on the elevator ride and you're going to decide yes or no? Um, it may not be 30 seconds, but it's definitely real. There, there, there's so much inbound in this business. I mean, I could just sit all day and handle my inbound and, and not do anything else. And so you've got to catch my attention and it's got to be something that fits in what I'm looking for, fits what my firm does and catches my attention. So it's real. It may not be 30 seconds. Lots of healthcare concepts are hard to explain in 30 seconds. Best elevator pitch you've ever heard. Wow. Uh, best elevator pitch I've ever heard. I'm guessing my open table for doctors earlier this I podcast. I think that was it. <laughs> uh, 
The Startup Podcast with Alex Bloomberg. Do you listen to it? Uh, not since not since the first early episodes. I'm I'm overwhelmed by listening to your podcast, Dan. Oh well, I, I guess that's an acceptable answer, but that precludes my follow up question there. Who's the best CEO in healthcare? There are so many great CEOs in healthcare. Um, I, I actually, you know, I'll, I'll pick one who, who who I really like. I think Mark Bertolini at Aetna has done a lot um, in terms of trying to move the needle on a huge super tanker of a business by making investments in new innovation areas that maybe are unpopular, many of which they've had to shut down, um, but many of which I think will go forward and become the new direction for companies like that. If I'm an insurance carrier right now, I should be very scared about what the next 50 years holds for me. So I think CEOs like Bertolini and others in that space are, are really trying to move the needle in a very hard space to move the needle. If there was a healthcare equivalent of Shark Tank, the reality show where investors get to sit and, and make picks, who's sitting on that panel? Uh, a healthcare equivalent, I would put uh, my friend Bob Kocher from Venrock. Um, uh, I think I would probably put a tech investor because I'd want an unbridled optimist. I'd probably put Vinod Kosla on that on that panel panel, um, and then uh, I'd probably put a practicing physician on there. Um, and I don't mean Doctor Oz, but a, you know, a physician who actually performs performs surgery or, or sees patients every day. Is there a practicing physician who's a healthcare investor that comes to mind? It's hard to do both at the same time. That's mm -hmm. that's the that's the problem. Last question: Twitter, we love it. It's in trouble. Would you invest in it? Oh, boy. Twitter's a utility for, for me. Tw Twitter ought to be a nonprofit. I, I want Jeff Bezos to buy Twitter. Um, so would I invest thinking he's going to pay more than the stock's valued at now? Probably. Um, do I think that's a likely outcome? Probably not. And so I, I, I fear for what the next owner of Twitter is going to do to Twitter. I'm, it, it really scares me. I think it's a, it's a beautiful communications medium. Um, when, and, when you're uh, not getting cursed at by Trump supporters. But even, even that, in even some that. ways, has some value because it's interesting to know that that part of the population exists. Exactly right. Is Twitter going to be around in five years? Uh, not in this current incarnation. It's probably going to look more like uh, Facebook or Instagram or something. But you know, this, this current model doesn't seem to be a, a, a money-making model for them. Well, will you come back in five years and we can judge whether your investments panned out and delivered the oh, value? I, 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 we should be judging that every year. <laughs> Well, I will, I will be checking in with you, maybe not on the podcast always, but you pop up in Politico Pulse, the newsletter, quite often. Beach, thanks for making time today. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it. That's it for Pulse Check today. Thanks to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, who knew nothing about Theranos and now is an expert, and editorial assistants, Mary Lee and Ramson Shaman. Pulse Check is available on Stitcher, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Overcast, and other podcast apps. Reminder that every time we get a new rating or review, it helps us spread the show to new folks. Currently scheduled for upcoming shows, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. He should be on by the end of the month. And we'll be back again with a new episode of Pulse Check next week. <laughs>